This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Propax Gold with NT Factor, a complete vitamin and mineral formula. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years. With a 45-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking to award-winning independent medical investigative journalist and author, Jean Lenzer. She's written a great book, The Danger Within Us. What's that about? Well, it's about America's untested, unregulated medical device industry and one man's battle to survive. You know, we often inveigh against the hazards of uh, drugs, drugs that are uh, released without uh, proper investigation. The studies were too small. The investigative period was too little. The uh, FDA was too lenient. But when it comes to uh, medical devices, uh, medical devices breeze through FDA approval with almost no oversight, and they expose uh, tens of millions of Americans to unprecedented hazards, and uh, it's just reaping a terrible toll of uh, suffering and and even death. Uh, in your book, Gene, uh, you trace the story of a guy named Dennis Fegan. You make it, uh, you sort of personalize this issue through uh, Dennis's story. So, can you can you chronicle that briefly? Sure. So, Dennis um, had epilepsy. And um, one night, he had a serious run of seizures, and he'd been trained to mark down every seizure that he had so that his doctor could adjust his medicines based on how well he was doing or, or not doing. And one morning, his parents were to take him to lunch as they normally, I mean, to breakfast as they normally did every Sunday morning. And um, he was an adult, I believe he was 42 at the time this happened. He was in his early 40s, and he had been a very active um, uh, captain uh, in the fire department. He was a paramedic and a firefighter. He was a very strong and healthy guy. And um, when his parents called him that morning to go to breakfast, he said he was too tired to go, just to go along without him. Um, he didn't mention this issue about seizures. His parents went to breakfast and they decided to get his favorite breakfast for him and bring it to him. When they arrived at his house, they saw him come out of his door looking totally dazed. And then he fell over onto the ground, hitting his head and immediately came back to life um, and then got up on a dining room chair and then fell over face first into the ground again, and he didn't come back to life quite so quickly. Um, they were panicked, of course. They called an ambulance. They had him rushed to the hospital, and he just told them that he'd been having a really bad run of seizures. He gets to the hospital ER, and the ER doctor there does what the medics had already done for him, which is to give him medicine for his seizures, to try to stop his seizures. But the medicine didn't stop the seizures. So the ER doctor gave him more of the same medicine in an attempt to stop the seizures. But it was surprising. It had 
no effect at all on the seizures. And in fact, he kept passing out so long and so frequently that when I spoke with that ER doctor who treated him, he said that he remembered this patient more than any other patient in his 30 years of practice. Mm -hmm. He remembers thumping him on the chest, trying to bring his heart back to life. And he remembers doing everything he could to keep him alive while a cardiologist and a neurologist arrived to help in the care of this patient. It was only when the neurologist arrived that he was able to explain this curious observation they were making, which was that Dennis's heart was flatlining at exactly three-minute intervals. Mm -hmm. And what it turns out is that Dennis had a device called a vagus nerve stimulator. Mm -hmm. And that device was firing at exactly three-minute intervals. Mm -hmm. And all along, Dennis and his neurologist for the past year, as he'd had these new inexplicable types of seizures, had assumed he was having seizures. Mm -hmm. And it was only when he was in the ER and the EKG recordings clearly showed that the device was causing his heart to stop, that they realized what was really happening. So the neurologist raced back to his office frantically trying to get the wand that he needed to turn off the device. And when he returned and turned it off, the so-called seizure stopped immediately. Despite this, this was not reported as a definite side effect of the device. The company tried to say that the drugs were causing his heart to stop. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, And this happens all the time where industry will blame anything except their device. And this is a relatively new technology. These are called VNS, vagal nerve stimulators. They're used for a variety of reasons. There's even some talk of using them in the treatment of uh, depression, in the use of, uh, in, in the treatment of pain syndromes yeah. and and more and more they're being um implanted but it's sort of like uh, a great you know experiment and we're the lab rats oh oh let me tell you more about what kind of lab rats we are and, and i i should back up before i launch into the lab rat story about the vns which is pretty impressive you know there obviously are many devices that are wonderful that mm-hmm. are really make lot improve people's lives and help them live longer or even save their lives. The problem that I'm pointing to is the lack of regulation that's allowing unsafe devices to get on the market untested. And that leads me to the story of how the VNS device got on the market in the first place. So the very first um, condition for which uh, the VNS was approved was for epilepsy. But an interesting thing happened during the FDA deliberations about whether they should approve the device. And it turns out that the only methodologist who was on the panel, these are people who specialize in how to look at clinical trials and understand what they mean. And this specialist uh, said, you know, there was actually a really high rate of deaths among these, and I shouldn't add the word really. What he said verbatim was there was a high rate of deaths among the patients who were implanted. Should I be worried about that? Those were his words. So what does the FDA do in response to this, quote, high rate of deaths that they observe among patients implanted with the VNS device? They decided to approve it anyway. But they improved it. They approved it conditionally. None of the patients who were implanted were told 
that it was approved conditionally because of the high rate of deaths. I mean, can you imagine if they were told, gee, you know, we've got this new device. It might stop some of your seizures, but we also saw a high rate of deaths among patients we implanted with it. Would you like to try it? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there are some people who would try it, but these people were virtual so lab rats. Right. Yeah, they had no idea. A story gets even better because conditional approval, what it means is, is that the company has to prove it safe after it's on the market and in people's bodies. So the company submits years later five studies that it says proves it's safe. The FDA accepts the five studies as proving it's safe. And yet what I document in the book is that they never collected any death data for any of the five studies. Hmm. When I confronted the FDA... They're completely safe if you exclude the this detail, this small detail about, I mean, yeah, I mean, from the standpoint of safety, they're fine, but eh, death, that's another story. We we won't talk about that. Well, that's when I said I I felt like I had entered into a Kafka novel because when I confronted the FDA with this and said, how can you say this device is safe when you approved it conditionally due to a high rate of deaths and there are no death data? And their answer to me was, and I have it in writing, we never asked them to count deaths. We only asked them to characterize deaths. Mm. I have no idea how you characterize deaths if you don't know if anyone died. But this is what's going on at the FDA. Wow. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, a stalwart who appears in this narrative in your book. And it kind of reads like a detective novel to some extent because... Uh, there are heroes and villains. Um, my namesake, Dr. Jerome Hoffman, uh, kind of a whistleblower in this field. He's a remarkable person. And what he is, he's a teacher of medicine. He's taught many, many, many medical students, residents, and fellow physicians throughout the years. And he's taught around the world. He's been um, invited to do year-long sabbaticals at various hospitals around the world. And um, he's treasured because he cuts through the illusions in medicine and how uh, drug and device companies often make claims that seem plausible but turn out to be anything but. So he's a really good resource for understanding what's true and what's not true in medical research. Well, The problem is about to be resolved, according to uh, the report of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The FDA (laughs) is claiming that uh, they're going to clean up this system. They're going to remove the loopholes and uh, the public will be protected. So what say you, Gene Lecker? (laughs) I say window dressing and damage control. Hmm. There was a massive global investigation, which I was part of, with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And that investigation released many, many articles around the world, as well as uh, documentary films, radio uh, broadcasts, um, print media. And one day after the launch of that investigation, massive investigation, the FDA made this announcement. Now, FDA knew that this was coming, and they knew it for at least six six weeks prior to this. And it turns out that the so-called overhaul that they're making is, in my estimation, nothing other than window dressing. It changes nothing in terms of providing 
any assurance of efficacy or safety. So what they've done is say that they're, quote, modernizing the system. How are they modernizing it? They're saying that companies shouldn't use predicate devices that are older than 10 years. Hmm. Well, I wrote about this in the BMJ, the International Medical Journal, formerly called the British Medical Journal. And, um, and I by the way, that's, that's just a very big uh, accolade is that uh, you as a uh, lay journalist uh, got uh, entree into the, one of the world's most prestigious medical journals to essentially highlight this issue. I think that's you know really a feather in your cap. Well, it's very kind of you, but actually I've been a, a writer for them for, I think, close to 17 years or so. Even better. And um, <laughs> it wasn't for this issue specifically. But yes, I'm a medical investigative journalist. And, and um, as far as I know, the BMJ is the only medical journal in the world to hire investigative journalists, investigative medical journalists. So, um, yes, this uh, I wrote about this, and I quoted um, Diana Zuckerman, who is the president of the National Center for Health Research, and what she said about this so-called overhaul, where they can't cite predicates that are more than 10 years old, and she said, newer doesn't mean better. Mm-hmm. None of them have been clinically tested. What she said was fewer than 5% of 510K devices, that is the low and intermediate risk devices ever have any form of clinical testing. And I'll also mention that for the high risk cardiac devices, as was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, only 5% of those high risk cardiac devices ever underwent clinical testing that even approached the kinds of clinical testing required for drugs. So um, to say that it's going to be modernized, yes, it's going to be newer, but there's still no requirement for clinical testing. So ultimately, the underlying problem is left unchanged. And I'll mention that the Institute of Medicine evaluated this system of using predicate devices years ago, and they said that the whole system was so poor that it couldn't be fixed and that it should be entirely thrown out. That was commissioned by the FDA. The FDA never followed that recommendation. And in a separate U.S. Supreme Court ruling, they determined in their um, statement on a case that to say that a device is cleared based on a predicate device offers no assurance of either safety or efficacy since that was never approved, never shown for the original device. It takes and a bunch of attorneys to make sense of this because, uh, you know, <laughs> they're not, they're, they're not uh, uh, medically trained, but it just totally makes sense. Yeah. And it leaves intact the supplement pathway. So once again, for high risk devices, they can get devices onto the market like Sprint Fidelis defibrillators without testing. And the Supreme Court further concluded that if the original device is unsafe, then all the predicate, then all the subsequent devices that cite that predicate will also be unsafe or are likely to be. Uh, when it comes to uh, highlighting medical issues, you're not a, a one note, Charlie. Uh, you have written uh, about many medical uh, excesses. Uh, including overdiagnosis or what yeah. you term disease creep. Uh, can you just briefly talk about that? Because that's an issue we've touched upon in this program is that, you know, the over medicalization 
of, uh, you know, all, all aspects of uh, human experience and behavior uh, have now come under the rubric of medical diseases amenable to drug treatments or medical device uh, fixes. So can you briefly mention that work? Sure. So disease creep is when you say that a disease is bigger than it might uh, sh- than it should be. So, for example, if you define hypertension or high blood pressure as being a blood pressure of, say, as it used to be, 140 over 90, and now they're lowering it even further, you say it's 120 over 80. And in fact, in Europe for many years, it was defined as anything 160 over 100. And in fact, there is no evidence that treating hypertension or if it even is hypertension, at levels below 160 over 100 has benefit. We don't know that. Um, there are studies that look at subsets of patients who have those levels, and they have not shown benefit. That's not definitive, but that's because they've mixed in high-risk patients with lower-risk patients. And sometimes we've actually found that there is more harm in treating the lower risk patients. And that's a really hard thing to explain to people. It's a whole separate subject. I'd love to talk about any time because I've actually given talks about this to doctors and I'll give them a case, give them numbers and ask them to figure out what is a safe level at which to treat. And invariably, doctors tend to way overestimate the harms of conditions and way underestimate the harms of our interventions. Right. There's and this I believe in that. Call the number needed to treat, uh, the number of patients you'd have to treat to prevent one uh, bad event or one death. And the numbers are astronomical sometimes. You have to sometimes treat uh, 100 patients uh, to save one patient with a, a medical intervention. So, uh, and yet doctors are sold on treatment, you know, and, and well, the drug companies, uh, highlight statistics that show, uh, vast improvements in, in outlook, uh, when it's just a statistical manipulation. Well, I'll go even further beyond the NNT or the number needed to treat, because what the number needed to treat excludes is the NNH, the number needed to harm. And if we only talk about the NNT, T, we can land up in trouble. And I recently got into this over statins because, you know, some people would say, well, you know, one out of 50 people may have fewer heart attack or fewer strokes, um, but they didn't mention harms. And in fact, in the only meta-analysis that really looked at overall deaths, which measures then how many people die because of rhabdomyolysis or other problems caused per- perhaps by statins, um, there were actually more deaths, slightly more deaths in the patients treated with statins than there were. And I'm talking about primary prevention. I'm talking about people who haven't had a heart attack or stroke. And so many, many patients may be over-treated. Now, it's true that, that the, the, what they will say is that you're, uh, this wasn't powered to determine definitively that statins cause harm in primary prevention, that it caused more overall deaths. But what interests me is that despite that statistic that says at least what we do know is that it's not saving lives, it hasn't been proved to save lives, and it may in fact even cause more deaths. Everybody made the assumption that because there were somewhat fewer heart attacks and strokes, it had to save lives. Not so. You're only talking about the NNT there. You're not talking about the NNH. 
And you introduce another term, uh, which is cure as cause. And I guess that has to do with uh, the harms that are caused by all these aggressive medical interventions, which are expensive and harmful. Sure. And and there, you know, um, I, I understand the illusions, the illusions in medicine, much like Dennis Fagan's, you know, seizures looking like they were seizures. Um, there are many instances in which it can be very hard to tell if it is, in fact, the underlying condition or whether it's the treatment that's causing the problem. Sometimes the only way to sort this out is through randomized clinical trials that tell us, are more people harmed if we put them on this drug or implant them with this device versus those who aren't? And and without those studies, we often can't tell. So in conclusion, what are some of the resources that people can turn to? First of all, your, there's your excellent book, and it's got lots of information. Uh, it's The Danger Within Us, and that book is available in the usual sources. Uh, you have a website, or are there advocacy groups that uh, patients can Sure. There are a number of advocacy groups, and I list them in the back of my book, and I also list them on my website, and I'll be updating my website with more resources that have come about as a part of this international global investigation by the journalists with ICIJ. And they actually have developed an incredible uh, medical database that people can go to uh, for withdrawn uh, devices and problems with devices that they can look up in that database. There are other databases around, too, that people are developing, and I urge them to look at these uh, resource lists that I've made for both patients and physicians. Is it reasonable uh, in a patient who's electively going to receive one of these uh, implants or devices uh, to do some due diligence and, and check to see whether the device has a proven safety record or whether there's potential problems. Is that something that uh, lay people can undertake on their own or, or perhaps, you know, challenge their doctors and say, uh, show me the data? I don't have any good answer for that question that I guess get asked all the time. Yeah. Other people do. And the reason I don't is that, look, if even people like Stephen Tower can't figure out the best he's an orthopedic plan, surgeon. and he's an orthopedist, if even a surgeon who's handed a device, he can't test that device mm -hmm. or she can't test that device. Mm -hmm. They don't know what went into it. They, they don't know the clinical testing. The clinical testing is absent. Yeah. So I really... I think that the only real thing we can do is insist on political change. We have to demand that the FDA actually change its behavior and not do damage control and window dressing. Now, I will say, you know, yeah, you should check some of these databases. You should check on the Internet for some groups um, and you want some reliable groups. But even that can be difficult. There are scam websites that appear to be uh, patient driven when in fact they are actually fronts for industry. Mm, that's right. So again, I'd so recommend... So-called advocacy groups that uh, really are are basically uh, slick means of promoting one therapy Absolutely. or medication or another. Yeah, they're called AstroTurf groups. Yep. And they're fake groups. So I recommend you go to my website or my book because I list only industry-independent groups. These are groups that can be trusted. Mm, great stuff. Well, thank you so much, and you know, also congratulations on the book, and and you know, keep up the great work being a uh, a watchdog on uh, this uh, medical industry, which unfortunately there, it's a revolving door. It, there's a uh, absolute 
collusion between the regulatory agencies that are supposed to safeguard us uh, and the industries that are uh, profit-driven and promoting drugs and devices that may not be ready for prime time. Oh, I will mention one thing that patients should do. Find out if your doctor is getting money from industry because some of the doctors who, for example, are implanting uh, spine devices, some of them were individually getting tens of millions of dollars from the company. But don't be fooled by even small amounts because what we know from studies are that even small, tiny amounts of money affect physician prescribing behavior. So, you know, you can check that out on dollars for docs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> doctors unfortunately come cheap uh, these days. <laughs> Jean, uh, it's really a pleasure, and you know we'll turn to you for uh, frequent updates because uh, you're an expert on many uh, areas in medicine, not just medical devices. Uh, in future, you know, we'd like to talk to you about uh, disease creep and over medicalization, and uh, you know some of the uh, questions about some of the you know. Real big issues. You know, are we using too many uh, statins? Are we using too many hypertensive medications? Is it really benefiting the populace? We'll uh, circle back and and ask you to join us again in the future. Well, thank thank you so much much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. The book again is The Danger Within Us, America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry and One Man's Battle to Survive by Gene Lenzer. It's L-E-N-Z-E-R. And your website is genelenzer.com. com, And that's J-E-A-N-N-E. So um, make sure you check it out. Thanks for joining us. Thanks I'm Dr. again. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant, and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.